January 24th, 2024, the federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the states. The executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws on the books right now. President Biden has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them. The result is that he has smashed records for illegal immigration. Despite having been put on notice in a series of letters, one of which I delivered to him by hand, President Biden has ignored Texas' demand that he perform his constitutional duties. President Biden has violated his oath to faithfully execute immigration laws enacted by Congress. Instead of prosecuting immigrants for the federal crime of illegal entry, President Biden has sent his lawyers into federal courts to sue Texas for taking action to secure the border. President Biden has instructed his agencies to ignore federal statutes that mandate the detention of illegal immigrants. The effect is to illegally allow their en masse parole into the United States. By wasting taxpayer dollars to tear open Texas border security infrastructure, President Biden has enticed illegal immigrants away from the 28 legal entry points along this state's southern border, bridges where nobody drowns, and into the dangerous waters of the Rio Grande. Under President Biden's lawless border policies, more than 6 million illegal immigrants have crossed our southern border in just three years. That is more than the population of 33 different states in this country. This illegal refusal to protect the states has inflicted unprecedented harm on all the people all across the United States. James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the other visionaries who wrote the U.S. Constitution foresaw that states should not be left to the mercy of a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats, like cartels smuggling millions of illegal immigrants across the border. That is why the framers included both Article 4, Section 4, which promises that the federal government, quote, shall protect each state against invasion, and Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which acknowledges, quote, the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders. We reference here Arizona versus U.S., 2012, the dissent of the late Justice Antonin Scalia. The failure of the Biden administration to fulfill the duties imposed by Article 4, Section 4 has triggered Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which reserves to this state the right of self-defense. For these reasons, I have already declared an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 to invoke Texas constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. That authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. The Texas National Guard, the Texas Department of Public Safety, and other Texas personnel are acting on that authority, as well as state law, to secure the Texas border. Greg Abbott, Governor of Texas. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. and welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I'm here with Joshua Trevino, our chief of intelligence and research. Thank you, Josh, for reading that. Um, I think the only thing I have to say is thank God for Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, He has been standing in the breach, and he's been such a leader. I know we've talked about him a lot on this podcast, but he's been such a leader when it comes to reaffirming Texas's constitutional authority to defend itself. Yeah. And so there's a lot to discuss today. Uh, I know that this statement, we were very excited to read it yesterday. I think you said it was like one of the best things you've ever read. So I'm very glad you picked it to start off with. In but this century, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess 
what I want to ask you about is let's talk about what that is in response to, right? So on Monday, um, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the U.S. Border Patrol could resume cutting uh, razor wire, uh, the razor wire that Texas had deployed in its border on its side of the Rio Grande to stop and deter illegal entry. And so this is in, in response to that. And so I just want to ask you, with all of this going on, how did we get to this place? Uh, great question. Uh, and I will echo your sentiments on Governor Abbott, who has gone far beyond, I think, what uh, any of us expected of any governor, even the best ones in the United States. Uh, he's he's really getting into, and we'll talk about this a little bit more on this, on this episode, mm-hmm. but he's really getting into constitutional territory and issues that have not been fully adjudicated across the past 250 years of American history, um, or I, I should say better, are repeatedly adjudicated because there's a need to. Uh, you know, what, what, what happened uh, now three days ago as of this recording is that the Supreme Court uh, lifted an injunction by the Fifth Circuit that enjoined the, uh, the federal government to stop destroying Texas border barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they lifted that injunction. It doesn't mean they ruled on the merits of the case. That remains to be done. Uh, but by a 5-4 majority, uh, which I'll be candid, is is a disappointment seeing a couple of the conservatives who um, were with the majority, they lifted the injunction and thereby enabled the federal government to uh, con- resume its destruction of Texas border barriers. Now, you may ask why the federal government is destroying Texas border barriers, uh, which after all would further formal federal policy, uh, but the reality is that uncontrolled migration, trafficking, cartel entry into the United States is actually informal and probably actual federal policy at this point, uh, mm-hmm. particularly under the Biden regime. So how did we get here? How did we get to the point where the governor of Texas makes a statement like this, invokes, legitimately invokes constitutional powers to defend his state against foreign invasion? Uh, We have to rewind a little bit uh, and look back, particularly in the case of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, to the second half of 2022. Uh, We came out then uh, with a speech from our CEO, Greg Sindelar, in Mexico City, and also some Mm -hmm. research that we released at the time. We'll link to it in the show description. Uh, explaining what a state invasion declaration looked like and also uh, asserting the criteria for an invasion declaration. And just to just to recapitulate that for those who haven't been faithfully watching all 21 episodes of Hard Country at this point, uh, uh, to, to to qualify as an invasion, you know, what we found is that you have to have uh, the twin qualities of entry plus enmity mm-hmm. into the area of the sovereign. What the cartels are doing at our southern border amply qualify for that. Uh, and from a historical standpoint, it's obvious that the founders included piratical acts. If you conceive of the cartels as mere organized crime, then they actually do still meet the invasion standard. And by the way, the cartels are in control of 100% of the illegal migration across the border and the illegal trafficking of goods and the entry of fentanyl and the facilitation of uh, operatives from the PRC, Hezbollah, you name it, uh, coming into the United States under their aegis. Um, But the reality is that, and that's a best case scenario, the reality is that the cartels are something even more than that because as our research has also demonstrated, and we'll link to that too, uh, they exist in conscious synthesis with the Mexican state itself. And there's no question, especially under the Moran regime in Mexico City, yeah. that the Mexican state has made a positive decision up to and including the president of Mexico to uh, exist in cooperative synthesis with the cartels. And we've covered this in depth on the show, so I yeah. won't go too much in depth on it here. But you 
know, to your question, how did we get here? We got here with that reality being established and being understood. And then fast forward through the past really 18 months, 18, 14 months, depending on how you want to count it, Texas making good faith efforts to uh, do what it could within the bounds of constitutionalism. And by the way, Governor Abbott is still within the bounds of constitutionalism to control that uncontrolled border. The Biden regime has taken a series of choices, uh, and actually there are a series of choices that we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation predicted uh, about half a year ago. This past summer, our CEO, Greg Sindelar, had another op-ed uh, out, I believe it was in The Federalist, which we'll also link to, yeah. talking about what the likely next moves were for the Biden regime. And here's what we predicted. Both the United States and Mexico have presidential elections this year in 2024. Uh, the presidential election in Mexico is essentially a foregone conclusion. Overwhelmingly likely that Claudia Scheinbaum is going to be the next president of Mexico. She is the handpicked successor of the current president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Uh, I think it remains to be seen, uh, you know, the quality of, of, of her, her leadership, uh, such as it is. But we know very well the quality of AMLO's leadership. Uh, again, a perennial topic with you and I. Uh, and and uh, here's what we predicted at the foundation, which is 100% come to pass. We predicted that uh, that the Mexican state would use the U.S. election season as an opportunity to blackmail the Biden regime, which hopes only for re-election, into a series of measures demanded by the Mexican regime. Mm -hmm. Number one among them emerging, and we've seen this uh, kind of kind of crescendo over the past several months a demand that the federal government suppress Texas and suppress Texas efforts to control its border. Now, there's a concurrence of uh, of interest on this, right? I mean, the federal government in the United States wants to suppress Texas because it's an ideological foe. Progressivism can't tolerate rival power centers. They're not amenable to federalism. And so, and so th th it's something that they were predisposed to do anyway. On the Mexican side, there's some nationalist elements to it. Texas and Mexico have a fraught history. I mean, we've talked about that very candidly, but really at the bottom of it is that Texas unlike the US federal government, is actually threatening the one thing that the state cartel synthesis that controls Mexico cares about, which is the flow of cash. The flow of cash, the flow of illegal and sometimes legal commerce uh, that comes across the border is something that they care very deeply about, not the safety of their people, not the mm -hmm. welfare of any of their own citizens, none of, the, none of the ordinary things that a state ought to care about. Mm -hmm. Not that Washington, D.C. cares much about that either. Uh, and so and so what, what ended up happening, and I think you saw it finally coalesce with the, I think it was December 28th visit of the U.S. Secretary of State yeah, in Mexico was. City. Yep. Yeah, that's right, December 28th. Uh, Blinken goes down to Mexico City, and then we have a series of events that follow from that, including uh, new litigation by DOJ on the U.S. side versus Texas, which is clearly a demand that the Mexicans had. Uh, by the way, whatever secret this was supposed to be is blown open because AMLO talks about it as Mañanera. I mean, he, right. he'll say openly <laughs> that uh, you know it. they're doing this at our request. They're going after Texas at our request. So how did we get here? We got here because there's two national governments, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Mexico City that have aligned themselves against Texas. But uh, the other way that we got here, in addition to our work at the foundation laying a lot of this conceptual groundwork, was we have a governor who genuinely represents the people and sentiment of Texas and has gone um, uh, to uh, legitimate and extraordinary lengths to defend our prerogatives as a smaller Republican people. Um, and I'll, I'll close with this, you know, just, uh, just as you said, thank God for him. Thank, yeah. God, thank, thank God Greg Abbott did this. No, and he yeah. said it best, you know, the first line is so powerful. The federal government has broken the compact between the United States 
and the states. So regardless of how we got here, you know, we're here. We're here. So what I want to ask you is what's the meaning of all of this? Yeah, I mean that that a lot a lot of the meaning is going to be clear more in retrospect, but there's a lot that we know right now and I completely agree that first line affirming that the federal government has broken the compact that unites it with the states and mm -hmm. unites the states with one another is both 100% correct and uh, incredibly portentous. Uh, yeah. I don't think there's any way other, uh, other way to put it. I think what it means, uh, and I'll engage in a little bit of speculation here. Uh, you know, I'm not. Uh, I don't mind read anybody in the public square, and you know, we certainly don't speak for anybody but ourselves, and and obviously the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, uh, although the litigative element of this is important, if litigative is a word, probably isn't. Uh, sounds like a word. To sounds me. like it might be. We'll take it. Um, uh, the judicial element, the litigation portion of it, uh, which, which which has, uh, from the a policy standpoint, predominated for quite a while. Yeah. I think that is now, although that remains important, it is now secondary. This is now predominantly a political matter. And I want to be clear what I mean by that. I don't mean a partisan matter. It's not Republican versus Democrat. Uh, you know, like that's not, the, that's not the line there. I mean, you and I know we can go to South Texas and find a lot of South Texas Democrats who are 100% in favor of what the governor is doing, uh, border security, so on, um, oh, yeah. largely, largely Mexican-American. Uh, uh, so, so it's not a partisan. I want to be 1,000% clear that when I say political, I mean political in the classic sense. The existence of a political community, of which Texas is one, Texas meets all the qualifications for nationhood. We know that. That's another thing that you and I have talked about on the show. Um, uh, does this polity mean to continue? Does it mean to continue to satisfy all the requirements that a polity ought, including the ability to define itself, to define admission into its community, uh, uh, and to uh, protect the life? liberty and pursuit of happiness of its citizens. All the things that the U.S. Declaration of Independence, echoed by the Texas Declaration of Independence uh, almost 50 years later, uh, affirmed were core functions of the state. And so now this is the question before us, uh, and this is what I think Governor Abbott is correctly uh, putting before us. There is a political question at hand. And I will give uh, Greg Abbott a thousand percent credit for this. You know, unlike a lot of uh, uh, a lot of office holders in other states, uh, you know, and, and we're not here to, you know, criticize. But uh, you know, I, I'll say I empathize with a lot of the right populist critique of, 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 of conservative office holders these days. We're very process bound. There's a virtuous reason for that. But at the same time, uh, uh, Governor Abbott appears to understand very well that because this has become fundamentally a political question uh, of the most basic nature. Uh, these political questions are decided uh, uh, by, by by two major things: facts and will, right? And and so and so he is to, to give you one example. Um, when the Supreme Court lifted the injunction against the federal destruction of Texas border barriers, you can sort of see uh, a 1990s style median Republican governor of any given state in the United States uh, stopping border barrier construction, maybe having his people help tear it down, but not doing anything like what Greg Abbott actually did, which was the day after, order the construction and the erection of new border barrier. <laughs> you know, hey guys, if you're gonna tear it down, here's some new stuff for you to tear down. Power Go ahead, move. like like see the optics of it. And, uh, you know, for, for those of us who, this is a little bit external to the su subject of our show, but, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell the audience, if you aren't familiar with uh, the decision theories and the theories of power of John Boyd, look into them. Uh, I think I mentioned him on the show before. Robert Coram wrote an amazing book on John Boyd. We'll link that in the, in the show okay. description, too. Um, but this is one of the things that, that, that Boyd, uh, you know, he passed away in 97, but he would have applauded 
what Abbott is doing right now, uh, because what Abbott is doing is getting inside the, the decision cycles of the federal government. Uh, uh, can, can we talk a little bit about escalation theory here real quick? Absolutely. There's really two names here that I think, at least on an instinctual level, if not an explicit one, that it really appears the, that the uh, chief executive in the state of Texas understands very well. One is Boydian theory, which is how do you get inside the decision cycle of, of, of your opponent, uh, both in, 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 and by the way, he's got two that are linked, you know, again, in Mexico and in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. being the proximate one right now. Yeah. He's doing that very well. Um, the other theorist that I would commend to the attention of of the viewer, the listener here, the audience at the Hard Country is uh, is, is is less well known. A fellow named Herman Kahn. Uh, Herman Kahn is most famous as a theoretician of of uh, nuclear warfare. Basically, he has this escalation dominance theory in which you in which you basically have to establish. There's it's, we don't have time to get too much into it here, but the, the, there's a ladder of escalation, right? So you start at, at saying mean things to each other, and then it ends. The latter has many, many rungs, and then it ends a total strategic thermonuclear exchange. So, by the way, we're, we're not we're not there. We're we're still down down here at the lower Good. rungs of the ladder. But <laughs> but at the same time, the, the the way in which you stop your opponent from climbing the ladder is to establish that you are capable of and willing to climb the ladder yourself. And this is why I think we haven't seen rapid response from the federal government yet as we're making this recording right now. Uh, uh, Greg Abbott has clearly established, you know, in kind of a Herman Kahn sense, escalation dominance over the feds. Doesn't mean it will last necessarily. I think there's a lot of events left to play out on this, and we'll talk about this a little bit coming in the show. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we, we really haven't seen this in the United States, uh, certainly not in my lifetime, in which a state governor of any kind uh, enters into forthright um, uh, contention with the federal government. I mean, set aside that the federal government is manifestly in the wrong on this, uh, and then and then establishes escalation dominance and a superior understanding of decision loops. And, and, and you've got to credit the decision makers in that office, first and foremost, the governor mm -hmm. himself, for at minimum having an instinctual understanding of it, uh, but I hope having, you know, for, as, as a Texan, uh, a more structured understanding of it, uh, because there's a lot of this game left to uh, left to play. Well, this wouldn't be hard country if we don't bring some history into it. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, first of all, to explain it to me like I'm 12. As you know, like in Bolivia, history classes looked a lot different than they did here. But <laughs> I want to know, can you place everything that we've been talking about and everything you've been saying into a historical context for me and for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, although although I, I, have no, I have no comment on the quality of Bolivian education, because uh, I simply don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I'm sure, though, that uh, given my own uh, education, in suburban Florida, it can't have been that much worse. Uh, it's just not U.S. Ba based at all. It's you know, not. We learned no. a lot about Latin America and Bolivia, and so a lot of the things that you talk about, which is something that I have loved getting to learn, is new to me. Okay, well, uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and if I ever want to uh, talk about reclaiming the Atacama, we'll we'll have that, <laughs> we'll have that conversation as well. Um, you know, I think there's I think there's three uh, there's three episodes that I would highlight from American history. Okay. Um, uh, you know, th th there's always been a push-pull. We've talked about this in a Mexican context. Yes. The, 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 there's a push-pull in the Mexican context between the centralizers and the federalists, and the centralizers mm -hmm. and the decentralizers in Mexican history. And that's been one of the major engines of Mexican history is is the uh, is is the continual um, uh, contest over you know does, is is Mexico as a country a country that is simply a ruled extension of Mexico City, the, the metropolis, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which was the original concept around the Valley of Mexico, pre-Spanish, pre uh, or 
uh, is Mexico genuinely a federation of independent states? And you've got, um, you know, the old uh, Reynos uh, of, the, of the Spanish era, Nueva León, Nueva Santander, you know, Nueva España and so on. Um, uh, they're now in union with one another. And so, uh, you know, anyway, not, not to get too deep into Mexican history, but that's almost been decided. It's a centralist state now. It's a centralist state that pretends it's a decentralist state. Uh, that that mechanism expressed differently is present in American history too, uh, and we too are a uh, have have tended toward a centralist state masquerading as uh, masquerading as a decentralized one. The difference is is that uh, really unlike Mexico, we have we actually have a real tradition of decentralization. Like we have you know we have a Tenth Amendment tradition. Uh, you know we arose as a nation uh, essentially an alliance of of, of self declared sovereign independent states, thirteen of them. You know at the time of the revolution. Uh, that came together to form the one United States. Uh, and even in the founding era, you had this real philosophical dispute between, I'm going to dramatically oversimplify this, by the way, but between the high federalists, um, uh, you know, slash Hamiltonians versus the Democratic Republicans and the Jeffersonians uh, who uh, who had very different views of what the United States ought to be. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, the Hamiltonians won out more um, uh, in terms of the structure of the nation than did the Democratic Republicans, but it was the Democratic Republicans who actually inherited the structure that the that the, that the Federalists built, and then they found that they really liked it because they liked being in control, and so he, here we are. But you know, I would I would look at a few um, a few episodes in American history because because one of the you know one of the questions that keeps rising again and again is when a state concludes an individual state concludes that the federal government has either violated the constitutional bounds uh, or is threatening the existence of the state as a polity, as a community, as a people uh, uh, that you know wishes to perpetuate itself into time. Um, what does that state do? And and you know we we've sort of answered it, but we haven't answered it conclusively in American history. And so I'll I'll, I'll illuminate a few examples that that fall on both sides of it. Uh, you know you know the the first one I think um, lots of minor examples, but the first one that I think is really consequential is in Thomas Jefferson's second term. Remember I said like like he inherits this this centralist structure that that you know, Washington and Adams and Alexander Hamilton build, and he right. finds that he really likes it, and so he ends up using a lot of the power that he swore he would never use. It's kind of the um, uh, who's it Joseph Ellis? He's the American Sphinx. Uh, uh, I think he's just inconstant. Uh, but in in Jefferson's second term. Uh, and this is this ought to be studied more because it's not really remembered in popular memory. But he and the Congress that his party controls uh, enacts uh, what's called the Embargo Acts. And so the Embargo Act basically, uh, I'll skip a lot of the context of it, but it essentially shuts off U.S. foreign trade. Uh, it does. And totally coincidentally, I'm sure, uh, has the effect of plunging into economic depression and general misery the very section of the country where Jefferson's political enemies are concentrated, which is New England. And uh, the Embargo Act uh, sets off about half a decade later. Um, uh, you get to the series of events where you have the War of 1812 and war with Britain. And the New England states actually, um, uh, the Hartford Convention is the most uh, dramatic expression of it, but they come, they come fairly close to secession. And, and, and they actually, uh, there, there's actually a lot of incidents of New Englanders, even in official capacities, either liaising with the British, who were formerly at war with the United States, mm-hmm. or uh, I don't think actively aiding them, although I could be wrong about that. I would I would uh, have some alert viewer check that for me. 
um, uh, but uh, but but that, that's an episode, and that that kind of gets swept under the rug because because fortunately the war ends eighteen fifteen, and so and so the the secession movement in New England, uh, and the the federal war on New England that stretches almost an entire decade uh, at that point comes to this abrupt end, and so because the pressure is gone and the policies sort of self terminate, you know. Jefferson's out, and and there's a whole, and the Federalist Party collapses also uh, mm-hmm. uh, after the war. Um, there's no resolution to it, and so the question remains: Well, what does the state do? Fast forward half a century, uh, uh, and you have, of course, the secession crisis of 1860, 1861. Um, uh, you know, of the of the eleven uh, uh, states, I just want to let me say before I explain this. I'm not issuing an apology for the Confederacy here. I want to be very distinct uh, and clear that I'm talking about four specific states. Um, uh, you have 11 Confederate states. They secede. Uh, of the 11, seven of them in their secession declarations talk about why they're seceding. And they're, and they're seceding because they think that the election of Abraham Lincoln is going to threaten the institution of slavery. And so they do that. I think we can all agree it's morally illegitimate. Uh, they go. But, right. but what's interesting is that there's there's four states, and I believe it's I believe it's Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. I would I would double check that, but I'm pretty sure it's those four. Who end up uh, uh, having, I think in Virginia's case, um, uh, actually reject secession, but then they but then they reconsider it uh, at a follow-up uh, state convention, uh, specifically because their their contention with the federal government is that the federal government doesn't have the constitutional power to do what what the Lincoln administration decides to do, which is raise an army to invade and conquer the seceding states. They just don't agree with it, so they end up themselves seceding. And but the grounds for that. Or something different, and again, that too, slavery question is completely resolved in American history. Again, don't misunderstand me on this. But that one question as to what the actual power of the of the uh, uh, of the federal government is 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 decided by fait accompli. And in fact, after the Civil War, there's no real body of litigation uh, that establishes whether or not the feds have the power mm. to do what they did. It's simply assumed. It was it was you know to the point made earlier. It was assumed that it was a fundamentally political act. Uh, Lincoln himself, you know, deliberately goes outside the Constitution by means of preserving it. Um, uh, and, and by the way, I want to be clear: uh, I, I, I endorse on ideological grounds. I endorse what Lincoln did. Uh, I agree with with uh, with Lincoln uh, and and also with with Frederick Douglass that the purpose of the Constitution is to fulfill the Declaration of Independence and the principles in there. That uh, I think Douglass was the one who said that the Declaration is um, the ring bolt of our liberty, and uh, and so. And so uh, that that's another episode where you have this this push pull. You know, what does the state do uh, when right. it, when it thinks the state? Another example. This, this will be this will be the third and final one. Uh, I would say would be the would be the, uh, the kind of the decade of the 1910s. Uh, so 1910, 1920, in which you have the the U.S. Mexico border war, uh, in which which states actually were compelled to defend themselves against depredations from Mexico. In that particular case, uh, the federal government did not force a choice uh, upon the states. Instead, in June 1916, the federal government actually calls for volunteers, mobilizes the National Guards of various states, and actually sends them to the U.S.-Mexico border to defend the states against invasion, which is an example of what, what ought to be happening right now, right? Like oh, nice. that's Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's great. So here we are. You know, uh, What I would argue is this, from the broad historical perspective, we are in a fourth major episode in American history across two and a half centuries of American history of this question of what does the state do when it concludes that the federal government uh, has broken has broken the compact between between the states and uh, and and the United States writ large, as Greg Abbott puts it. Uh, and uh, you know, Abbott Abbott started a course that uh, you know we're in full concurrence with. Uh, you know, we think the states have an obligation to stand up and meet the first duty of any polity, which is to defend its community. 
um, uh, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll just end with this. Uh, this question will probably recur again and again throughout American history. What we in this historical moment have a duty to do is make sure it is decided correctly. Um, uh, the federal government exists so that we can live in liberty. That's it. It's the only reason the federal government exists. It's the only reason that we have a United States. Now, there's a lot that flows from that. Um, uh, but if it is unable to do that, to defend all the things that promote living in liberty, which is which is you know, rule of law, the judicial apparatus, making sure the border's not open, uh, then uh, then uh, you know what, what what remains is for the state of Texas and the other states to stand in the gap and fulfill their duties, even if Washington, D.C. won't. That's super interesting historical precedent. Very, very interesting. And it's crazy that we're living through this time now. What yeah. might be this fourth phase that we're talking about? We're, we're, we're in it, whether we like it or not. Yeah. It's not going away. So we've talked a little bit about the past. Uh, let's look towards the future. I guess I want to ask you what's next. Let's start with the federal side. What's next? Uh, so this is pure speculation, obviously, and 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 in candor, I don't think the Feds know what they're going to do. Uh, I don't you know, the, the Biden administration is not marked by uh, by the hallmarks of sharp thinking, forward planning, or competence <laughs> uh, in any sphere. I mean, it's really um, uh, it, it it is it is the most uh, slapdash presidential administration of the near half century of my lifetime, uh, and that's saying something because I was alive for Carter. Uh, but uh, you know, it it it, it really. If I had to guess, uh, you know, they are probably in a conundrum as to uh, what advances their number one goal, which is, you know, not protecting the United States, mm. but actually securing their own reelection and retention in power. Yep. And uh, and so you could imagine that they'll try and set up some communicative uh, narratives, you know, and, and you've already seen it. Uh, you may recall, and some of the viewers may recall, that in uh, when the when the the first wave of the the Haitians came into Del Rio, in, Little uh, Haiti, in uh, right in late 2021, yeah, uh, I believe, and you had that that episode where the the president personally basically destroyed the life and career of this very innocent border patrolman who uh, there, there was a photograph taken of him. Do you remember this? The Reigns photograph. He was oh, he was on a horse. Yeah. There was a Haitian migrant, and uh, because uh, because nobody in journalism knows anything anymore, um, uh, the the loose reins were wrongly interpreted as a whip, uh, and the vice president uh, got on it, and and the, and the president said he was going to punish the guy, and it turned out the guy was literally just riding his horse, and that's what Reigns look like when they're. Kind of flopping about, yeah. um, uh, so you can see that kind of demagoguery reappearing. No question uh, about it. Uh, so, so you'll see that. I also suspect strongly that they're trying to figure out what their bureaucratic options are uh, versus versus the state of Texas. They probably know that going out at this point and destroying the border barriers is a non-starter. That doesn't mean they won't do it because they have been doing it. Yeah. Um, but uh, now, them. as an amplification of, of the crisis, it's not clear to me that they're they're rushing back to do that. So if you had to think about what their, um, like what their next moves are gonna be, uh, I think, uh, I, I can think of three. Again, all speculative on my part. Obviously, there's a lot of Democratic uh, congressmen who are calling for federalization of the Texas National Guard. Just take the guard away, right? Which which the feds can do. Uh, I mean, we, we should be clear about that. The the national government can federalize any state National Guard you know, immediately for any reason, uh, and, and there's no recourse to it. So if you wanted to deprive Texas of, of, of tremendous manpower necessary to execute Operation Lone Star and border control, that would be, that would be one thing uh, to do. 
Um, uh, another thing that you can do is, uh, and then and then the question arises is, what do you do with the Texas National Guard once you do it? Well, you've got you really only got three options. You either send them home, um, uh, which which makes the federalization a little bit tenuous because then you kind of open yourself up to you know some kind of a legal challenge. I don't think it'd be that strong, but it's there. Uh, or you send them overseas. You know, there's a lot of guard units that rotate abroad, and uh, actually, 36 ID, which is the basically the core, you know, major unit of the Texas Army National Guard, uh, I believe, is due to rotate through Poland in the next 12 months. Um, or, and this is the kind of the nuclear option, you use the Texas National Guard to destroy the Texas border infrastructure. The same men who erected it get to tear it down, except this time under federal orders, mm. uh, and that's very fraught. Another thing that you could envision is uh, is uh, the the federal government, um, you know, doing what it can to cut off funding and material and logistical support to the Texas National Guard without federalizing it. Um, uh, it's probably possible, but I personally have a hard time seeing them getting crosswise with the with the the, the Army and DoD over that. I could be wrong. Um, and then the final thing, which I think actually is meaningfully possible, is uh, they they probably will look for pretexts to prosecute individuals within the Texas National Guard and with Texas DPS and so on, um, uh, and make examples of a few people by destroying their lives, basically, by ruining them through selective prosecution. Uh, and it would not surprise me at all if there are individuals at the Department of Justice right now who are looking at what the predicates are under U.S. code for prosecuting, say, a Texas state trooper, you know, some poor Texas National Guard E4 who's, you know, yeah. doing, you know, d doing his duty. Uh, and so striking at the ranks in that way is is possible. You could also envision prosecution of, of uh, you know, senior uh, uh, Texas officials as well. Uh, depending on how far up the escalation ladder they wanted to go, um, uh, but you know this is a uh, this is a presidential administration that has um, tried to prosecute its likely opponent in the next general election. So what's off the table for them? Probably nothing. Uh, I, I'll add this, uh, and, and we can talk a little bit more about this later in the show. Th this is going to be the most important priority for them prior to the summer. I think I'll, I'll explain why when we get to that point. So we're in an election year, right? Mm -hmm. So what yeah. do you think the likelihood is? I know we wouldn't put much past them. Put nothing past them. This is for them. This is existential. I think. I think this is worth. This is worth uh, digging into uh, a little bit. Uh, uh, if they if they lose this, and by they I don't just mean the Biden regime. I mean the I mean the whole progressive mm -hmm. movement. If yeah. they lose this, their project starts to shudder to an end. It's already held together by, you know, twine, scotch tape, and bailing wire as it is. Uh, you know, think about it from a grand perspective. Their major institutions are absolutely collapsing. Um, public faith in DEI in the in the corporate world is 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 shuddering away. Uh, the uh, kind of the ivory towers in higher education are under attack and popular faith in them is 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 dramatically diminished. Oh, yeah. Uh, no one's joining the military anymore because they don't have faith in the yeah. in the government. We have the smallest armed forces, by the way, since prior to World War II right now. And and that's with multiple wars going on overseas. And it's because there's you know, nobody wants to join. Can't blame them. And they don't. Oh, no, no, you can't. Uh, and and on top of all that, um, there is a general understanding that, uh, especially with the current president at the helm, that we are ruled by a leftist gerontocracy that doesn't really resemble 
any precedent in the American system, but it does resemble the immediate post-Brezhnev era in the Soviet system when you had you know, the, the gerontocracy of Chernyenko and Dropov, and they all died within six months of assuming office. Now, that being said, all of those Soviet leaders were five to 10 years younger than Joe Biden is right now. Uh, so, so I think I think this is existential for them. If, if if what Texas does works, if it attracts mass support, if it uh, if it succeeds in stymieing the federal government mm. and the Biden regime in any way, uh, then the, you know it's not you know contrary to what a lot of the hyperventilation is on, on on left Twitter. You know, it's not the Second Civil War. It's not it's not you know the, the reformation of the Confederacy or anything like that. Like these like these fantasies. They're really telling themselves that you hear these people indulging in. Uh, what, what you have is uh, is federalism. What you have is the United States is actually conceived. What you have is 50 states and a union for the defense of the liberty of its people, uh, each of which pursues the good and the virtuous and the noble in the way it best sees fit. And that's a great vision. It's the vision for which the country was founded. Um, and the fact that that, the fulfillment of America, is the end of their project tells you everything you need to know about them. Uh, and that's why they fear it so much. That's why they'll fight it so much. Well, let me ask you one more thing. We, we talked a little bit about what's next on the federal side. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about what's next on the state side? Uh, uh, not any more than I can on the federal side, but I'll be happy speculate. to speculate. Please speculate. Um, I'll say, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, look, uh, you know, you know we'll, we have seen in the past 24 hours an mm -hmm. outpouring of support from uh, all Republican governors, unfortunately, although there are Democratic governors, I would say, out there with a, with an interest in Texas succeeding, uh, but they probably don't feel secure in endorsing what Texas is doing because of intra-party concerns. Publicly, yeah. Publicly, that's exactly right. But uh, do I think Arizona is interested in Texas winning? Yes, yeah. I do, I do, 100%. So, um, uh, you know, you, you, I, think, I think what remains to be seen is what the, pra what the practical effect of Florida, Tennessee, Montana, all these states, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you know, coming out Virginia, uh, in favor of Texas, affirming the theory of the compact of the states, as articulated by Governor Abbott, how that ends up affecting uh, uh, events. Uh, you know, I could, I could, uh, and anyway, I have no insight into what future plans are. But um, uh, you know, what would I do if I were, uh, you know, advising? Each of these states have national guards as well. Uh, if the feds make the gambit to federalize the Texas National Guard, Texans, uh, I can speak for Texans in this case, would be honored to have the Florida National Guard hold the line. Uh, uh, you know, we would accept, just as we did in 1916, the aid of the other states in defending our international border from chaos in Mexico. And, uh, you, know, you know, that, I suspect, uh, is at minimum conceived in places that matter be on the studio and um, so if you're asking what's next I think I think things like that are what's next um, and worst case let's say the feds go all the way they prosecute mm -hmm. uh, Texas officials they prosecute Texas soldiers um, they tear down border barriers uh, there is still that's terrible that's a terrible outcome it's not the outcome that I want but if it happens there is utility in the long run for the country in seeing the mask fully off from the regime and from the ideology that it represents. Well, Josh, we live in Texas. We live in Austin, in the capital of all places, and we work in policy. So I could, I would say, like we're very in the weeds, and sometimes it's easy 
to feel like you're very deep in the weeds. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you to put this maybe in more of a global context. I mean, anyone turns on the news, there's a lot happening around the world. A lot. I mean, like you said, we have wars, we have this, we have that. So I'm curious for you to tell me and tell our listeners, like, how does this rank? And and what kind of context can you put this in globally? That's a great question. And I think ultimately it's it's, uh, that and the question of the, the, you know, the quality, the political quality of this are probably the two big questions. Yeah. I think this is the most important thing in the entire planet right now, uh, facing facing um, not just the country, but also free peoples around the world. And I don't think that's hyperbole. That's not just Texas parochialism talking. I mean, I always think Texas is the most important place. Uh, But what gets decided here is going to affect uh, every country, every people, every nation that depends upon the United States of America abroad. Um, uh, and you know, you know my views. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of muscular America abroad. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm lulled, I, I lull my kids to sleep by turning on uh, H. Norman Schwarzkopf briefings. So uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a serious thing. But look, the United States is is currently under the Biden regime. Uh, we are a nation in decline. Now, decline is a choice. All right. Uh, yeah. So 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 we've chosen it. Um, but 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 look at what's happened. I mean, just look at the military side of it. We chose we chose chose. Cannot emphasize that enough. We chose to lose the war in Afghanistan under Joe Biden. Uh, uh, we are currently choosing to lose the war against the Yemenis. Um, uh, not many people know this, but the United States Navy, uh, I think, for the first time in decades, uh, if not generations, lost a naval battle. Uh, in the Red Sea, uh, to to uh, you should you alert alert listeners should look this up. But uh, there was a U.S. Mm-hmm. destroyer that was trying to escort two Maersk vessels through the uh, the Bab al Mandeb, which is you know the strait between Yemen and uh, kind of the Horn of Africa, Djibouti and Eritrea. Um, uh, did you know Bab al Mandeb means the gate of sorrows? Means the gate no. of tears. I didn't know that either. But it's how appropriate is that? So no, I didn't know that. So they're trying to enter the southern entrance of the Red Sea. And uh, and 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 the Yemenis, the, the these Houthi, you know, they keep they keep calling them tribesmen, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll set aside the characterization of them. Um, but they're very good at what they do. Oh, you yeah. gotta admire. I mean, for, for for tribesmen, they've got they've got ballistic missiles and advanced drones and things like that. And uh, they actually defeated the um, the, uh, the the ballistic missile and anti air defense systems of this escorting U.S. destroyer, and they successfully closed the Bab al Mandeb again against the active efforts of the United States Navy. So we lost a naval battle. Another I just want loss. to be clear, we lost a naval battle. It's the end of freedom of the seas, immensely portentous. To me, that's the second most important thing that's been happening. But you know, again, look around the world, there's talk, which I think is accurate, that we're probably going to leave Iraq and Syria in the next few days. And again, I'm not, I'm not a huge proponent of us being in Iraq and Syria, and it's kind of external to what the hard country's about. But the reason that I mention it is that that too is um, uh, in itself, given the context in which it happens, an emboldening act. Uh, we should have left them without the Iranians shooting at us. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, so, so we're, we're in the process of, of, of losing the fights that we're in, of failing to fully pursue uh, the fights that we choose to engage in. For example, Ukraine, uh, we've essentially disengaged from that uh, as well. So, you know, that's probably going to end unfavorably uh, for U.S. policy. All these are choices that we've made. And and now compounding it is this crisis at home, you know. So if you have the kind of this this increasingly rickety infrastructure of American presence, mm-hmm. and and the superstructure built around it abroad, whether it's the alliance system, it's the military presence, it's the it's it's the prestige uh, and power of the United States, which has been exposed as naked, basically with not a lot sustaining it. Um, uh, for that to transmute and add a domestic constitutional crisis to it. 
what's really being communicated, and it's entirely the fault of the people in Washington, D.C., uh, what's really being communicated is that that regime in Washington, D.C., uh, not only is incapable of sustaining the American position abroad, they can't even sustain their own position at home. They can't. And just imagine what happens when when real adversaries, you know, mm -hmm. in places like Beijing, for example, wake up to that, uh, which they probably already have. So, so unless, and I think I think there's going to be an understanding by all parties, unless DC and the interest that DC represents around the world does not get its position back, does not recoup its losses, does not you know retrench in any meaningful way to them, if they cannot exert control in their own home, in their own nation, because absent that, nothing else that they do matters. So what that means is when you look at the prioritization of effort, they're going to come after us. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to pursue the Iranians with vigor. They're not going to pursue, you know, victory versus the Russians. They're not going to pursue effective deterrence versus the Chinese, uh, you know, and, and and then you know toss in the North Koreans or whomever else you wish. Mm. Uh, but they will come after Texas, and added to it will be the fact that on an instinctual level, and this is especially true with the Obama administration veterans in the White House, uh, emotively they don't hate any of these enemies abroad. They definitely don't hate the Iranians. In fact, they kind of like them, mm. but they do hate us. We're Southern, we're Texan, we're conservative, we're independence loving. Uh, we like America as it's supposed to be. And that makes us their most dire enemies in their eyes. And we have to be aware of that. What do we do? What can a regular American, a regular Texan do in the face of all this besides like go hide out in a bunker or <laughs> something uh i don't i don't think you hide out in a bunker i think i think in this case uh, we're very fortunate uh maybe we'll end where we began uh you know, you know we're very fortunate that uh that that we have a governor who is uh who is not, not just saying the right things but doing the right things at that point and so one of the things that we do is we make sure uh, uh that we that we support those efforts a hundred percent um, we also remember that we are a people of law. You know, we're a people mm -hmm. of law. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, we don't. Uh, there's, you know, I talked about kind of the irresponsible talk on the left that you see online. I'll strawman yeah. a little bit. There, there, there's, there's also irresponsible talk of, uh, you, know, you know, grabbing your rifle and going to the border. Don't do that. Uh, you know, you know, you know, we have. But, but what the people who need help right now are our elected officials who need to hear writ large, uh, you know, Democrat and Republican, both, you know, irrespective of party, a writ large who need to hear from the people of Texas uh, that we support these efforts to to secure a border. Make sure that, that your representatives within, uh, you know, our constitutional system, Texas constitutional system, American constitutional system, know that we, that this is what we want. This is our issue. It's the number one issue among conservatives. I think it's the number one issue among the general public right now as well. Definitely number uh, one. You know, let them know because that steals the spine of an office holder. It just does. Yeah. And that's not because of lack of virtue in any given office holder, but it does matter. Constituent, I would just want to I'll speak directly to the camera. Constituent communications matter more than you think. Even yeah. if you're getting the intern and you think nothing has happened, it does matter because that gets aggregated and turned yeah. in. So let them know. Um, uh, and then, and then the other thing that you can do, honestly, is is, uh, and I don't mean to sound gauzy about it, but live as a free person. Speak your mind. Um, uh, you know, do do the things that they don't want you to do. And those things are go to church, go to synagogue, go to mosque, whatever you got. You know, live your faith life. Understand that your important networks and your real governance is not reposed in the structure that the progressives would have, which is the structure of the state, but it is in your family, your community, your neighbors. 
and undergirding it all, your history and heritage. And if you remember those things, they will fail. I want to wrap up with one last question. You and I were talking about this, I think, yesterday or the day before. Sure. But as I said before, this is an election year. Is this something that people might forget about if we change leadership? That's a worry of mine. Interesting question. Uh, you know, the, uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. You know, my uh, I'll have to be I'll have to be prudent here and not not speculate on on the outcome of the general election in November. Um, uh, but I think I think that even if you got, I mean, we, we we've gone pretty far down this road, especially after yesterday. I think that even if you got a mm -hmm. a good conservative, maybe it's a conservative Democratic administration. Probably not, but <laughs> but maybe it is. If you got Tough a good luck. if you got a good conservative administration that was oriented to border security, uh, there's no question in my mind. Again, I don't speak for the governor of Texas. I don't speak for the government of Texas, anything like that. But I feel pretty pretty sure in saying that that Texas would gladly cooperate with with that federal government to to do what that federal government ought to be doing. And in fact, look, Abbott's letter from yesterday says yeah. says that he will. You know, he's he's he's, uh, he's 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 explicitly affirming. I mean, I mean for all the, you know, the 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 hyperventilation from from our friends on the left that that the governor of Texas is defying federal law, uh, this this letter is shot through with invocations of federal law and a desire that federal law is enforced and fulfilled. Uh, so if there's a presidential administration that wants to do that, um, uh, every every sign says that Texas will be on board. Well, this was kind of quite an episode. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, I Melissa. I appreciate all of your comments and all of your thoughts, and I'll make sure to get everything linked. Thank you so much. So thank you, and thank you to all of our listeners for listening to The Hard Country. We'll see you next time.